The Springboks are Rugby World Cup 2019 champions. That's a sentence you can say for the next four years and it will never get old. But how did they do it? Not just by winning the final by a staggering 20-point margin over England, but how did they rise to the top of the world from a place where Springbok rugby looked beyond repair and beyond redemption? I'm Craig Ray, and joining me on today's Daily Maverick Sports Podcast to unpack a wide range of issues around the Springboks' rise to the top is respected rugby analyst Selling Nell, who I'm reliably informed is wearing a pair of Fuff de Klerk-inspired Ornabruck today. Zillum's astute observations before the final last week have aged well. He pointed out that the box needed to vary their game against Eddie Jones' side to have success, and they did just that. How and what exactly did they do to make England so jittery, and how can South Africa transfer what the box have done into the lower rungs of the game? Welcome, Zell. Did you enjoy that? Yeah, great to be here, Craig. Uh, I think from the top, let's just say, I, I mean, obviously my prediction was wrong, and like we said at the uh, episode two, very, very happy to be wrong in this situation. Um, it's absolutely glorious to be a world champion by, by, uh, by default, by association to the Springboks. Um, and, uh, just, yeah, superb. I mean, the, 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 the sky looks brighter. The sun looks brighter. The air feels fresher. It's great to be a box, uh, box supporter. I mean, we'll get into the nitty gritty of how they did it shortly. But some of the statistics were quite staggering. They only conceded 0.6 tries per game throughout the World Cup. So it's you know, fewer than one try per game. Um, you know, they won 69 lineouts. They lost one throw throughout the entire tournament. And that was in the semi final against Wales. Um, you know, they scored two tries in the final, which is the first time they've ever scored tries. They remained, uh, they kept the opposition tryless in the final for the third time. Um, you know, Mapimpi scores six tries, literally coming from nowhere, you know, nearly gets up to Brian Abana levels of, of try scoring in a World Cup, which in itself is pretty special. Uh, they won 14 scrum penalties in the, in the World Cup, the most. I think about seven of those were in the final. Um, they stole 15 lineouts of opposition ball, the most in the World Cup. Andre Pollard kicked six penalties, the most by a player. They scored 33 tries, the second most in the tournament. So that attacking myth, does also take a bit of a pounding with that stat. Pollard scored 69 points, the most by an individual. 262 team points, the most by a team in the tournament. I know they played one more game than England and New Zealand. And they made 818 tackles, which was only the third most in the tournament, which, you know, you might have thought the Springboks would be topping that count as well. So when you stack up those fairly basic statistics... They were deserved world champions, weren't they? Absolutely. And I think that's that's what I really hope that South African rugby supporters take out of this World Cup and this World Cup final is the team, the only team that scored tries in the final was the team that kicked more, tackled more, and scrummed better. You know, rugby, yes, the tactics change, but the strategy in rugby is the same as it's always been, and it's the same. It'll always be it'll always be what it is. As as long as you have backwards passes. Um, as the fundamental differentiator in the sport. Being able to defend, being able to control the field and being able to, to dominate set piece is always going to be the platform for success. And we were unapologetic about it, which is great. I mean, you know, Rossi Erasmus, he had a very short time to turn this team around. We'll get hopefully into some of the technical detail of how you can turn a team around so quickly. Um, but, you know, if we look at the final itself for a second, right from the beginning, right from the outset, um, I was telling you before we came on air that the coin toss, the Swayze de Brain has done a big dissection of the actual coin toss and the body language and so on. But what struck me at the coin toss watching it live was England won the toss. Now, in a World Cup final, you England, 
You're a team that bases your game on kicking and territory. And he chooses to receive the kick, which means the Springboks immediately, from minute, from second one, are inside England's 22. So Farrell, by choosing to receive the kick, concedes territory from the kickoff. That, to me, showed muddied thinking before the kickoff. Absolutely. It reminded me of, I can't remember the exact context for this, but remember Victor Matfield with the Bulls and Farid Priya. There was a stage where, in a game where they were, uh, I think they were up by very few points and they got an opportunity to kick a penalty. In fact, I think they were up by one point. They got an opportunity to kick a penalty and their whole philosophy about it was, we're going to take the line out to try and milk the last couple of minutes off the clock because if we kick the penalty and we're up by four points, then we have to, at that point, receive the kickoff and we're in a bad position on the field and potentially the other team can convert that field position into a try. So if we just take this line out, whether we score or not, it's actually irrelevant. We eat, we eat some time off the clock and we, we keep the, the opponent, opposing team 85 meters from our try line. That's like basic, basic thinking in terms of converting field position into points. And for me, England starting that game by wanting to, wanting to receive the ball and somehow be playing in their own half. Like you said, it was kind of a window into their thinking in that match. Yeah, it's not in their DNA. I mean, we've seen throughout the entire tournament they play a territory-based game. It also reminds me of a story John Smith told me, the British and Irish Lions, the second test in 2009, that epic at uh, Loftus Fastfelt when the Springboks came back from um, 22-10 down to eventually win the game 28-25. But the box got ahead 25-22, and there were about four minutes to go, and the Lions got a penalty. And Alan Wynne-Jones, excuse me, um, uh, Paul O'Connell, Lions captain, said to Stephen Jones, who was on the field at the time, kick the penalty. And John Smith said at that moment, he knew they were going to win the series. He turned to his teammates and says, these guys, they're going to kick a penalty to make a 25 all. They're 1-0 down in the series. This is the second test. The best they can get out of this game now is a draw. They don't want to win the series. He says, boys, they'll kick it over. We go back down there and we... We score and we Brilliant. win the series. And and it's little things like that. It's moments that was in the heat of a game and right at the end and maybe O'Connell wasn't thinking it through properly. But this was before a game you would have thought Eddie and Owen Farrell would have discussed winning the toss, we do X. And, and maybe this was a tactic, but I still can't see the logic to the tactic. I mean, best case scenario, you win the ball, you kick it down, you have a line out roundabout on the halfway line, Springbok put in immediately. That's best case scenario. Worst case scenario, you fumble the ball, the Springboks score a try. And the sort of middle scenario is you concede a penalty and the Springboks get three points, which is exactly what happened. They didn't get the three points because Pollard missed the kick. But immediately the jitters were in there. And that that put them on the back foot. And it's so mental, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, you know, so so it really gives, like I said, a, a window into, into what they were thinking because all England needed to do to win this game was come out and continue what they had been doing, which was to kick the ball shamelessly uh, and to defend and then to convert uh, errors into points. And I, I'm guessing, yeah, and I'm a huge Eddie fan, like I've been saying in these two episodes, but I, I feel like Eddie completely overthought this final. I think he gave the Springboks way too much credit for their ability to be tactically nuanced and smart and savvy. The reality is that the 9, 10, and 15 going into this final for South Africa were not in form. Um, there are questions about their ability to kick consistently uh, for field position and to win that battle. And I feel like Eddie got all tied up in, in aces that may or may not have been up Russie's sleeve on attack. 
and the physicality that the Springboks were going to bring, probably based on his experience with guys like Victor and Bucky's, um, et cetera, when he was involved with the 2007 box. This is not the 2007 box. They're far less experienced. Um, you could argue that they're not the blue chip players of the 2007 side. They're world champions and that's all that counts. But I'm just saying, in hindsight, I feel like if England had just come out and stuck to what they were doing extremely well, ruthlessly, efficiently, um, I, I don't think the Springboks could have lived with their, with their kicking game. In fact, if you look at that final, every time England kicked long, they got a positive result. Whether it was, um, you know, Villy return kicking for a negative gain, so England making 20 meters on one kick from a George Ford kick, uh, whether it was Andre Pollard tripping over his feet twice and then getting isolated for a penalty. Every time England kicked long, they got good results. There's no way that that England side on their own, without Eddie's instruction, decided that they were going to run from the in-goal area. That was tactical tweaks that had been made in the build-up to this final to try and catch the Springboks unawares, to try and outthink them. And I think, like I say, Eddie just completely overthought it. How did he get it so wrong? Because he's such a smart coach and he, and he knows the South African mindset. I mean, he's worked in South Africa. He's worked at Saracens with South Africans and he's worked uh, in Japan at Suntory with a lot of South Africans. In fact, Free Dupree, Eddie Jones said once is the best rugby player he's ever coached. You read a piece in The Guardian in the lead up where Eddie talks about that 2007, just, just sort of fill us in yes, w- what his mindset was and maybe how it affected his approach to this, this final. Right, so he obviously got to work with guys like Victor and Faree at the Springboks in 2007, having coached the Queensland Reds in 2006 and getting hammered by the Bulls in Pretoria. Um, and his takeaway was that that Springbok side was uh, the smartest team he'd ever worked with, aside from the 2001 Wallabies that had Stephen Larkham and Finnegan, etc. Um and I just wonder whether he didn't credit the current box with that same level of sort of tactical IQ um, that the likes of, I mean, Faf de Klerk, for all his bravado and courage and bravery and tenacity, is not free de prayer. Um, You know, Percy Montgomery and Vili LaRue, not really comparable. Um, you know, I, I, just, I just wonder whether, whether Eddie's takeaway was not that he was going to be facing a similar threat and that, you know, he needed to adjust to counteract that when, when actually he didn't. Yeah, well, he did. Yeah. <laughs> and the rest is Thank history, goodness. as they say. But I suppose it sounds like we've been a little bit negative towards the Springboks because they played the near-perfect match on. in a final. I mean, they were almost error-free. I mean, they obviously made one or two errors. The Pollard trip over his own feet and then hanging onto the ball is one of them. But you can count the errors almost on one hand in that World Cup final, which, which suggests they handled, A, the pressure far better than England and... England were rattled from the word go. I mean, they were running the ball from inside their own in-goal area. Passes were going everywhere. It was just a shambles. And um, and then losing Sinclair was, well, we don't know. I mean, we assume it was a big blow because he's a big designated ball carrier for them as well. Um, so a lot went right for South Africa, but they made a lot go right. And just in terms of the build-up, do you think, do you think South Africa got it spot on? They They kept some cards close to their chest in the semi-final. It was a high-risk strategy, maybe just going into a one-on-one arm wrestle with Wales and hoping to get through without showing anything. And like you pointed out last week, the box needed to adjust their game plan a little bit in the final. And they did kick from wider, as you indicated they might. Vili LaRue came into first receiver or second receiver quite regularly, and he used that boot quite well. And I, I distinctly remember one raking kick that ended up in a penalty for the box. So... Just unpack that a little bit for us, how the box maybe tweaked their strategy slightly for the final. Yeah, I don't, I, Craig, I'm not sure that the box did much of the tweaking, to be honest. Like, uh, 
there were some elements of the attack that were definitely more nuanced than before. You know, a couple of sort of screen passes and, and we played a bit wider and it looked great. Ultimately, we made fewer errors because we made fewer carries. England decided they were going to hold the ball from the kickoff. They were going to have the ball. They were going to run it from the end goal area. They were going to move away from their kicking game to try and catch us by surprise. And the result was that the error rate went up and we got the ball in broken play because of that. Instead of having to break down a defense that was set up for first phase defense, we were running at guys that had the ball three seconds ago. Um, and that gave us confidence and, and saw us running downhill. So, so we, we profited from, from sticking to the tactics that worked for us and from England veering away from what worked for them. Again, if England had just come out and wanted to jab, 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 I don't think we could have lived with them. Um, and I think a lot of their, you could see they were tight chested. You could see they were, you know, they were choking in this game. And I think that's because they made too many changes. They went away from what worked for them going into this final. It played right into our hands. Um, it, it masked, it papered over our kicking inconsistencies and played very much into our ability from broken play uh, to turn turnovers into field positional points. A lot of the English media and you have talked about the loss of Sinclair has been pivotal, but the Springboks lost Bongi and Benambi and Lurte Yaga so in the 21st minutes. So it wasn't like they went through the game without disruption either, but they seem to manage that disruption a lot better. And it's probably testament to Rossi's bomb squad 6-2 split when you get Marks and you get Franco Mostard coming on you know, earlier than they would have liked. But they, if anything, upped the ante for the team rather than, than just continued it. Whereas England brought on a, a prop who had hardly played in the World Cup. He's aging, untested really, and that was where they lost the battle because seven scrum penalties, they were going nowhere in the game. It's not often that a perfect storm favours South Africa. And I think this is one time in the history of South African rugby where the perfect storm really did favour us. You know, uh, they lost Kyle Sinclair. They changed the way they're going to play. Um, you know, our bench was perfectly set up to absorb injuries where we absorbed injuries. I mean, who in the world can claim to have a Malcolm Marks coming off the bench for a Bongi and Bonambi? Yeah, I, mean, I mean, he'd walk into any team in the world, wouldn't he? It's incredible. Yeah. And we spoke about Franco Mostert's this mobile high work rate guy who comes on for a uh, set-piece lock in Luat Diaga against a team that is choosing not to set up set-pieces. So basically, we brought Franco Mostert on to come and do what he does best against an England side that weren't kicking it out and that weren't giving us line-outs. It was perfect for us. Everything I mean, when Mostert came on, it was right at that moment where England had probably their best period of the game, sort of between the 23rd and the 33rd minute, where they put a lot of pressure on, on, on the Springboks and they went through that sort of 20 phase. And Mostert made about 10 tackles in that phase because he's... He's mobile for a big man now. Lurt, for all his other attributes, wouldn't have got through that amount of work. And who knows, England might have scored because there might have been a hole where Lurt should have been and couldn't get there under that pressure. But most had been more mobile. So everything sort of worked out for the Springboks. But like you say, England were not thinking clearly. One of the Springboks' biggest line-out threats was off the field, and they didn't look to go for line-outs. Absolutely. And, and I mean, just when in the history of South Africa or do we go into a final with absolutely no pressure on us? Like in the semi-final already, the Springboks go in there and it's like, listen, guys, it's amazing that you've gone from the darkest period in Springbok history to reaching a World Cup semi-final. If you beat Wales, great, but hey, we're just proud of you for getting there. That was amplified going into the final against an England team that had been building for four years to get there. And everything that Eddie had said about New Zealand the week before going into the semi-final about New Zealand, there's nowhere to hide, there's so much pressure on them, it's chasing them down the street. All of those things applied to England. Um, again, it's just that it was perfectly set up for this situation. Everything seemed to click for South Africa. I, I think it was just meant to be. On the day, 
every development on the field seemed to just work in South Africa's favor. And as we pointed out, even the coin toss, England won it. <laughs> exactly. And handed South Africa an advantage. Yeah. So everything sort of did work out for South Africa. But we've got to maybe take a little step back here uh, before we go forward again. It worked out, but it wasn't by chance. Rassi Erasmus came in. Let's go back to the dark days of 2016 and 17. I mean, I was in Florence when the Springboks lost to Italy. It wasn't just that they lost a match. It was an appalling match. They, they didn't have a clue. They, they, no one seemed to know what they were doing. It was a bunch of guys running into another bunch of guys. And they couldn't break down an Italian defense that, quite honestly, was not that great. They just were clueless. And then they bumbled along and lost 57-0 to the All Blacks. And Alistair Kutsia told us there were a lot of positives in that game. <laughs> Maybe you saw something that we didn't see. Um, and so on and so on. And then Rassi comes in under quite controversial circumstances in the, in the fact that he had gone away to Munster. SA Rugby had called him back to come do an emergency job. Alistair went down guns blazing, firing shots about how this was always a plan to undermine him and he had never got all, any of the support that Rassi was now going to get. And I'm not sure that's true, and we'll never know. All we do know is that Rassi came in and got a job done and probably got it done a lot better than anyone expected and probably than he was mandated to. I would imagine, and I don't know this for a fact because he's never said what his mandate is, but I think semifinals of the Rugby World Cup would have been an A+. Plus, uh, if someone, had, if he had told the Saru hierarchy in, in March of 2018 we'll get to the semifinals of the Rugby World Cup, they would have taken that and said, thanks, and let's build towards 2023. Obviously, we've gone past that. Just rugby-wise, tactically, what did Rossi do, having watched them for the last two years, that changed from those bumbling days of 2016 and 17? What Rossi showed in this 18-month period is something that South Africa needs to learn quickly, and that's that coaches are more important, are more valuable to a, an organization or a rugby union than blue chip elite players. So don't get me wrong, you're not going to win a World Cup with nobodies. You do need quality players. But I'm of the opinion that if you have a great coach, you could go out there into the Boerland and find 23 players that could quite easily match whatever the Northern Hemisphere can put together. With enough time, a top flight coach can win. Rugby is one of the few professional sports in the world where most of the guys that are coaching in it don't... Uh, play to the data they coach on gut feel and what they would like to see it's almost romantic and Russi is not one of those guys Russi is the guy who does the numbers if if rugby was a game where you would win by mauling 75 times a game that's what Russi would do there are a lot of coaches out there who are too good for that you know they want to be seen to throw the ball around Russi just came in and said guys this is my mate Jacques Ninova he's a great defense coach we are going to defend and we're going to defend extremely well and we're going to back up that defense with excellent set-piece play. Maddie Proudfoot's going to be doing the, doing the scrums. Everybody in this team is going to tackle and is going to tackle well. We're going to be organized on defense. And we're going to leverage that defense by winning field position through kicks from 9, 10, and 15. And these are the guys that are going to be doing it. And this is how you're going to do it and when you're going to do it. No questions asked. And then once we've won field position and we get possession, then we attack. So there was no coming with this uh, beautiful picture of how the game's going to look and who's going to score the tries and how many touches the wings are going to get. That's why Russi was so quickly successful. It's much easier to organize a defense than it is to organize an attack. It's like playing noughts and crosses. If I just go out to stop you from winning and you go out to win, chances are I'm going to win more often by default than you are because it's easier for me to block three in a row than it is to make three in a row. And that's the essence of rugby and Russi gets that. 
And um, that was the key to his success there is that any coach that just goes in and looks at the data can see very quickly what it takes to win. And when winning is your only priority, your top priority, nothing can stop you. But that said, to win his way or that way requires winning the contact areas, requires winning collisions. And I suppose maybe he's lucky in the sense that South Africa and rugby has that in its DNA. Exactly. I mean, he played, he played exactly to South African rugby strengths. Jake White always was unapologetic about it, and other coaches have tried to veer away from it. But Rossi just said, it doesn't matter if you're a big Afrikaans farm boy or a black kid from, from uh, the Eastern Cape. This is how we play rugby in South Africa. And he has the players to do it. So it certainly aided his cause. Absolutely. But Craig, that's why South Africa is such a powerhouse, because rugby rewards that. That's how this game works. You can, you can be in England and only start tackling when you're 13 and have beautiful handling skills and sell this game as a pass, pass, pass game. When it comes to the crunch, when you hit the World Cup, if that's the way you try and play, the team that's been tackling since they were six years old is going to beat you the majority of the time. That's how rugby, it's like being a soccer player and coaching your guys on slide tackles only. The team that can control possession and dribble and shoot well is going to beat you every time. It's just the way the game works. There's no way around that. But going back to the defense, it took a while to bed down. I mean, 2018 wasn't, se- you know, wasn't seamless. I mean, Jacques Ninab, I remember having a very fascinating discussion with him. He, uh, you know, he, he said he had players coming from different systems. He had a, I can't remember which um, franchise it was, but one of them was sort of drifting on defense and the other one was playing the outside in. And so you had these backline players who were playing one system and another lot playing another system, literally right to left or left to right. And he, he said before the Wales test in Washington, he literally had one defense session, 45 minutes with the team, with 13 new Springboks in that team. And then before the first England test, he had two sessions. So he would have had a total of 90 minutes with the team before the first test against England at Ellis Park, here, Khaleesi's first game, which the box, as we remember, won. But they conceded, I think, three or four tries in the opening 25 minutes of that game because they were all over the shop. How did he fix that, Ninaba, in, in a relatively short space of time? He did it by trial and error. So my information is that Jacques came in and said, listen, guys, the wingers, you boys are shooting up. When they play that, when the, when the ball comes out from set phase, you guys are going up and you're jamming in at breakneck speed. Don't think, don't decision make, just go up as fast as you can. And so that worked the majority of the time. And then they were exposed on a few occasions. And that was the learning curve. They basically created their own tutorial over time. They reviewed their clips as they went forward and said, okay, can you see in this situation, this is the decision-making process. Here's where you, this is the cue you need to take about maybe slow, slowing your jam or not jamming or staying out. And I think that they basically taught themselves over those 18 months. Amazing. But that was what he demanded of his players. He demanded that the players go and do analysis of their own game and of the opposition. And that's why we saw several players fall by the wayside. You know, where are the likes of uh, Ruan Kumbrink and so on these, these star wings whereas these nobodies Makazola Mapimpi who knew about him two years ago has become a world class player going forward and defensively because the standards have been set so high in that Springbok camp and that comes down to Rossi and to Sia and, and, and everyone else and you know someone like Lukanyo Am has been absolutely critical in this just just give us a little bit of a, an insight to what it takes to be a 13 because he, he has marshaled that defense. Absolutely. I mean, for me, he's the most underrated player in that back line. I mean, Damien really 
started to show his colors and I think he's got some respect now, but Lacan, your aim is a vital, vital cog in that. The, the sort of awe and reverence that we hold Jacques Ferry in from his time at 13 and how long it took us to replace him just goes to show the value of, of that guy at 13. Um, you know, that, that, that is the sort of swing position in, in the defense. That's the guy who decides when and who and how fast we move from left to right to cope with the way that the attack shapes up. Um, it's a vital, vital position, especially when you're going to be jamming in. I mean, you've got to make calls now that, uh, that affect how you are able to contain a potential breakout when they get around that jam. He was just incredible. And they were allowed to fail, weren't they? I mean, that was the key. Rassi told the public that we were going to lose some matches in 2018, but he would have told the team that, guys, you know, fly up. You're going to make mistakes. We will lose matches, but we're not going to hold you responsible as long as you're improving and you're learning from those. And he was obviously true to his word. And that's vital, isn't it, that the coach was big enough to go, yeah, it's not only about winning every test match if we've got a greater goal as long as we reach that goal. That's the silver lining from Alistair Kutsia's era is that it was so bad that Rossi had the latitude to do that. So when we look at 2020 going forward, he's not going to be able to come out and go, hey, guys, we can lose a couple of tests and it doesn't really matter because, hey, ho, we're just building towards the 2023 World Cup. We're at a point now where we're world champions and we need to live up to that that station. And that's why it comes back to that perfect storm thing is that it was set up for us to go into this final as underdogs. Having been so poor before, anything was a positive. Um, that's going to be different going forward now. So you, you, you are going to be expected to continue to deliver world-class performances as the world champions. Absolutely. Now, that is the next challenge. You know, where to now for the Springboks? Rossi is going back into the office. He's going to be director of rugby and looking after the junior box and the women program and you know, organizing the Sevens World Cup and whatever else the director of rugby does. Um, his day-to-day running of the Springboks, he says, will end, but I very much doubt his fingerprints won't be all over them for the next four years anyway. But how do you bring in... Um, a new coach who's not in the current setup, if they bring someone in from outside, who will basically take direction on a day-to-day basis from the director of rugby. Because as we know, every new coach wants to come in and do things his way, show his ability, stamp his authority on the team, bring in assistant coaches who are his people. And how does South African rugby get around this? Because we've had this in 1996, world champions, lose a home series to the All Blacks for the first time ever, end up losing to the British and Irish Lions in 1997, and everything fell in 18 months. What had happened in 1995 was forgotten and was a shambles. In 2008, not quite so bad. We lost three test matches in the Tri-Nations as it was post-2007. Had a good 2009, although people forget, even though 2009 the box won everything, they lost five test matches in 2009. Five test matches. The All Blacks have a bad year. They lose one test match. Um, and then 2010 and 11 were shambles. And we never really got back. We plodded along through to now. So how do we stop that from happening now that the coaches immediately stepped aside? I mean, how many teams have won back-to-back World Cups? One. Okay, so the chances <laughs> are that whoever comes in now is going to under-deliver. The chances of us winning back-to-back World Cups are low. Not saying we can't do it. And, you know, if there's a country that could do it, South Africa's there. But whoever comes in is going to be facing an uphill battle. He's going to inherit the opposite of what Rassi got. It's not going to be that, please just give us some wins because we've forgotten what it feels like to win. It's going to be, hey, we will champions. We need to continue doing that. So that is a hell of a difficult job to walk into. And I don't think you're going to find somebody who has the aptitude for the job and isn't strong-minded enough to want to do it a specific way. Um, and you can't be half pregnant. 
So Rossi either needs to be coaching this team or he needs to be handoff in an advisory role. Um, and I'm not sure that you want the guy who just masterminded the World Cup success to be in a hands-off role. But then by the same token, if he is your director of rugby and that's the path that he chooses to go, he can't be sort of prairie-dogging on this. He either needs to be the head coach and be accountable for the team or not. You can't just have a sort of puppet figure that sits there uh, and sort of defers all questions to the director of rugby. But that's exactly what's going to happen because he's he's resigned if, for effectively as Springbok coach. So they, there has to be a new guy that sits in the chair who has the the banner in front of him that says Springbok coach and will answer the questions of the media. Now, I don't know who that guy will be. But so Rusty's going to be pulling the strings from above. This guy's going to have to be a bit of a yes man if that's how Rusty wants it to be. Who's going to do that job? Yeah, but you, I mean, you know, you know from the media, Craig, nobody's going to accept that. You know, the media will go there for the first three press conferences and they'll see straight through that charade and then uh, uh, that facade. And then they'll be, they'll be on the phone to Rusty directly and they'll be saying, Russ, clearly you're the man making the decisions here. You need to answer some questions. So I, I don't know whether that's going to fly unless they appoint somebody who is a strong, respected coach who, who can claim to be the guy where the buck stops. Um, I and I don't really know how that's going to work. You know, if you brought in a guy like, uh, let's say, Jake White or Gary Gold, those are all strong, independent coaches who are going to want to do it a particular way. Not that they, they weigh veers drastically from Russi, but it will be different to, in some nuances to what Russi wants to do. Um, those will be guys that, you, that the media will accept as being the last, the last word on the spring box. Um, you know, if you appoint somebody else who's less experienced or is a, uh, a specialist technical coach, it's not going to take long for the media to decide that this guy is basically just the buffer between the media and Russi. But is that such a bad thing? Let's say it's Shark Ninalba, for argument's sake, comes in. He and Russi have been coaching together for 20 years in various places. They were in the army together. They, they, yeah, they, they're old mates. And Ninalba is a tactical genius, especially on defense, but he understands the game. He and Russi share the same philosophy on rugby. They share the same values. He comes in as the head coach, in inverted commas, and basically continues what he and Rossi have been doing because they've been working as a partnership anyway. I know Rossi's the head coach, but a lot of the input in the current Springbok setup has come from Ninaba and the other assistant coaches. And Ninaba just sits at the press conferences and says, you know, we're doing it this way or that way, and this is the team for this week. Um, and everyone knows that it's still a dual role with Rossi Rasmus. Is that such a bad thing? I think operationally, that's probably the best way forward because there's so much familiarity and so much sort of congruency in the way that they think about rugby. I think that's the best way forward for the on-field performances of the Springboks. I'm not convinced. Unfortunately, this that position comes with so much extra. There's so many sideshows that go with being the Springbok coach. Jacques is not diplomatic enough to be a Springbok coach. When the Springbok side hits a few speed bumps and maybe they lose three in a row between now and the next World Cup, I'm not sure Jacques uh, is a guy who can be economical with the truth enough not to create uh, a firestorm in the media. Jacques will say it like it is, and I'm not sure that'll go down too well. <laughs> be lovely for a change. Eh? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I mean, you can imagine, you know, given all the sort of political um, implications of being a Springbok coach with selections and everything that goes along with that, um, and we're sort of navigating a period where it seems like we we sort of in super rugby, but also investigating our opportunities in the north. There's going to be the Springbok head coach is going to need to be particularly sensitive to a number of issues. I'm not sure whether whether Ninas is the right guy to be doing that on field. He, that partnership is the best. They've proven it. They've won 
Curry Cups. They've won a World Cup. They turned the Stormers into contenders. Those guys can win on the field. Um, but there was a reason that Russie made Alistair the head coach of the Stormers during his time there. Alistair was masterful at selling things like there are positives to take out of a loss against Italy. I mean, that guy, you know, there's just, you would go to a press conference armed with hard questions and you just look into his eyes and it'd be impossible to ask them. I don't know how he did it, but he could sell you sand in the desert. It was amazing. And that was a great move by Russie and Alistair was perfect for that job. But it ended with Russie leaving Cape Town because of the pressures. And, and that was after he wasn't even the head coach. So I'm not sure that Jacques would work as the Bach head coach. So we'll have a Bach head coach discussion in the future because it's obviously something that is worrying because we want to actually capitalize on this and leverage this. Not just you know the next two, three years of Springbok rugby dominance. And the Springbok should be entering a phase of world dominance now. The All Blacks are going to go through a bit of rebuilding with a new coach. England are in disarray. Eddie might stay, might not. It's, it's a golden opportunity for the Springboks to now really clamp down and say we're the best team in the world and, and for the next two, three years. When you think of the core of the squad, they'll all be around. Maybe Dwayne will soldier on for another year, maybe not. But it's probably Beast, Skulk Brits. You know, I can't think of too many others that aren't going to be available from this current World Cup squad, at least for the next two years. So everything's there. The foundation's there. That pack of forwards is going nowhere. Um, you know, you throw in the likes of Trevor Niakani, um, Lisa Goboka comes back. There's a lot to be excited about, but it's it's always South African rugby. You know, we we could be the light at the end of the tunnel could be an oncoming train. And everybody's going to be super itchy about getting into the squad for this Lions tour. I mean, that's going to be a massive. Do you think we're thinking too far ahead? I know Rusty's referenced the Lions tour, but that's in 2021. I'd like to see us dominate. The rugby championship in 2020, that no, would be absolutely, first absolutely. But I, what I'm saying is from a player perspective, there's a couple of guys who are maybe turning down offers from overseas clubs now uh, to strengthen their shot at getting into that box squad for the Lions, the Lions tour. That is going to be epic. You know, the, if the box follow up this World Cup success with a, with a series victory against the Lions, that'll mark them, that'll equalize that 2007 side. They'll be able to, that, that's an equivalent feat of, mm. of, uh, of success. So I'm sure there are a lot of guys probably come home, have a week off, have a couple of beers, and then be straight back on the field getting ready. I'd like to see a winning percentage though sitting at around 80 for the next few years because, to me, the All Blacks have set the gold standard. And, I mean, they are that All Black team for the last decade, sort of from 2010 to to this year, you know, has had an incredible winning record. Steve Hansen's 87% winning record, 107 test matches as coach. They won 93 of them with four draws and 10 defeats. I mean, it's... it's it's ridiculous. I don't expect the Springboks to be that good. I don't expect any side to win close to 90% of their matches, you know, year on end. But sitting around the high 70s, 80 would be acceptable. And we never seem to do that. We sort of drop down into those 60s. And to me, that's not a dominant team. And, and there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to do that from here. The reason we, we can't do that and we haven't done that in the past is because we constantly, perennially, locked in a tournament where we have to fly to the other side of the world to play guys that have been sitting there chilling, waiting for us, with three islands of reinforcements uh, and to smash us. You know, we, I'm not sure that Super Rugby has been good for South Africa in all senses. Yes, it's good because we're exposed to New Zealand rugby and we get to test ourselves against the best in the world, but we've certainly uh, matched what we've gained with what we've given in terms of teaching them the kicking game, physicality, the mall. You know, there's a lot of stuff that we've, that, that New Zealand have benefited from, from us being in Super Rugby, not to mention smashing us every week initially on these five-week tours to Australasia, um, and we've made Australian rugby relevant. So 
So getting around that super rugby hurdle is tough, especially when we start the season with coaches talking about the product and playing an exciting brand of rugby to entertain and winning is an afterthought. So how do we align, how does the Springbok success filter down particularly to super rugby on at all aspects? We just You've just mentioned you know, uh, the game plan, aligning a game plan with the Springbok so that all the franchises play in a similar way so that the movement of players from the Springboks down or Super Rugby up is seamless. How do we do that? I mean, how do coaches all buy into that? Because only one team ultimately can win Super Rugby. So there's going to, and if it's a South African team, there's three South African teams that aren't winning Super Rugby. So those coaches are going to come under pressure anyway. So how does Rassi, as director of rugby at, at Saru, talk the Super Rugby franchises into buying into what he's just proven is a winning vision? That's his chain and ball, and that's something. That's the one thing Russi actually doesn't know how to solve because I don't think he'd have any difficulty getting South African rugby coaches on board with what's just won a World Cup. The problem is those South African rugby coaches aren't employed by Russi. They're employed by stakeholders like sponsors and boardroom guys who equate professional rugby with club rugby and high school rugby. And what they see on a Saturday from schoolboys and clubs is guys throwing the ball around and offloading and scoring beautiful tries in massive mismatches where the, the level between the best player and the worst player is massive. They, don't, they can't see that at the pro level, that, that distinction between the best player and the worst player on the field is much narrower, and it takes much more efficient tactics to win at that level. So those coaches, their jobs are reliant on pleasing those stakeholders, and those stakeholders don't understand rugby. And that's the problem that's facing South African rugby, is the decision makers do not necessarily always understand how the game works. Um, and you've constantly got coaches trying to balance marketing objectives with coaching imperatives. So those boardroom guys will say, oh, well, you only won six matches. But then the coach will say, well, to win, this is how we have to play. And then those stakeholders will say, well, we need to see tries. So it's a very difficult juggling act. Coaching in South Africa is a hell of a, hell of a difficult job. We could go on with that for hours, but just quickly back to the World Cup before we finish this podcast. Who, what were your standout moments of the World Cup and who were the players... Name three that stood out for you in the tournament. Don't have to be South African. Sure. Um, Peter Steff Tatoy, World Rugby Player of the Year, absolutely deserved. Uh, his work rate, I mean, he was fire. He was absolute fire. It was fantastic to watch. Um, that South African pack, the way we got back to dominating. Bongi, not missing lineouts. Uh, Damien Dialendi coming through in a big way, silencing his critics. Um, despite the sort of off-field storm, Eben stood up and played well. Um, it was great to see Beast effectively go out on a high, you know, yeah. his last World Cup. Um, I, I don't think I would have picked France Malhaber for the World Cup, but <laughs> the tractor man was amazing. He was, wasn't he? He was incredible. Um, it was a good World Cup. You know, Japan, like we said in the original uh, episode one, I mean, J Japan were just great. It was just such a nice breath of fresh air to see a different contender uh, emerge at that World Cup. It was great to see the final wasn't marred by bad refereeing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, th I, th I thought it was a good tournament all in all. I mean, aside from the whole Typhoon saga, I thought it was a very good tournament. It was a great tournament indeed. South Africa Rugby World Cup champions. Now, thanks for all your input over the last uh, three weeks. And uh, there's a lot more rugby to go in the, in the future, but I think we'll hand it over now to other sports in the, the coming weeks. Or maybe not, because uh, Sevens is on the, around the corner, your favourite. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we'll have some more guests in the coming weeks. And please sign up for the Daily Maverick Sports Newsletter for all your latest sports news, and the podcast will be linked there as well. Thanks very much for joining us. Cheers.